Today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 13, and it can be found on page 967 in the Pew Bibles. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Myra. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. For those that were able to make it to Link yesterday, it was fun being with you. If you weren't able to be there, uh, we missed you. And uh, don't worry, we'll do it again next year. So just stay put for one year, and then you can join us next year. Uh, but today, uh, we get into our sermon. Ah, but before we begin our sermon, I see a note to myself. I want to take a moment to draw attention to a, a particular announcement that's in our bulletin. So if you look in our bulletin, on the announcement side, you're going to see at the top right-hand corner, we have uh, a transforming uh, prayer weekend event that's coming up, or a Saturday event. It's on September 9th. And I want to just draw your attention to that. Uh, we're bringing in a special speaker from down in Texas. He's going to be doing some training for us. So that morning, from 9 o'clock until noon, and then I think we're going to eat lunch together, uh, it's going to be a time of training. And uh, so not so much a prayer meeting, uh, but rather an opportunity for us to think and talk about and learn about prayer. So maybe uh, prayer is something that you're uh, not, uh, don't feel particularly good at. It's like, a, it's like the T-Rex arm, you know, of your spirituality. It's just this little appendage that hangs out there that you have, but you don't know what to do with. All right, but uh, uh, we want to grow in our capacity to pray, and prayer is connected uh, not only to our own spiritual vitality, but it's connected to our capacity for the mission of God to go forward. 
And so let me encourage you uh, to be there on September 9th uh, for that time of learning more about prayer. And then on September 10th, uh, the following Sunday, uh, the next day, we're going to have a, a special time of focused prayer uh, as a congregation here. So uh, mark your calendars for that and look forward to you joining us then uh, on that morning. All right, so this morning, though, we continue on in our sermon series in 2 Corinthians. Took a little bit of a break over the summer for a number of weeks. We started it up again uh, last week. Our sermon series is called Yet Always Rejoicing. And last week, we looked at chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, and we focused on the theme of God's comfort. And uh, this morning, we're going to cover some of the same ground but our focus will be on godly grief, and specifically the goodness of godly grief. In our passage this morning, Paul makes a distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief, good. Worldly grief, bad, right? So I want to help us get our heads around this idea of godly grief. And towards that end, we're going to look at three characteristics of godly grief from this passage. Now, as I mentioned last week, Chapter 7, verse 5, restarts a topic that Paul first brought up all the way back in chapter 2. So our text this morning is picking back up in the middle of Paul's train of thought on a topic, though, that he hasn't mentioned since chapter 2. And I gave a bit of a recap last week, sort of a recap of the situation in Corinth to help us get up to speed on what Paul was talking about. But I know that many of you were still traveling last week or for whatever reason uh, you weren't here last week. So I'm going to give another brief recap. It's going to be briefer this time to help those of you who may have missed last week so you're caught up to speed of, as to what Paul's talking about. But this could be my last recap. You missed two weeks in a row. You're on your own uh, after that, right? So no more recaps. All right, so quickly to, to help us understand what's going on in Corinth and why Paul is talking about what he's talking about. Paul established a church in Corinth. He was the original church planter, as it were, there in Corinth. And then he moved on to other fields of ministry to start establishing other congregations. But then something went wrong back in Corinth, and someone, we can read this in chapter 2, verse 5, began to cause problems there in the church of Corinth. And so I mentioned last week, we don't know exactly who this was. We don't know exactly what the problem uh, was. It may have been one of the false teachers, these super apostles. We've talked about them periodically throughout the sermon series. We're going to meet them again later. Uh, might have been one of the super apostles. I don't think so, though, but it's hard to tell. But it might have been someone, I think this is more likely the case, that was causing problems that should have been provoking some sort of church discipline proceedings that weren't taking place. We can read uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, about a number of situations in the church that were problematic, that were kind of in the church discipline uh, sphere. There were pretty severe factions within the church and divisions. There was some flagrant sexual immorality. Uh, there were some lawsuits that were taking place uh, within the congregation. So maybe it was something in that category. But whatever it was, whoever it was, when Paul came back to Corinth, he confronted this particular situation and trouble broke out between him and whoever this troublemaker was. And the Corinthians had not sided or come to Paul's aid uh, in that uh, confrontation. And so Paul had left Corinth uh, uh, with things unresolved, and he wrote a rebuking letter 
back to the Corinthians, and that letter is now lost uh, for us, but it refers, what is the letter that Paul refers to here in our passage. And in this rebuking letter, he expresses his hurt uh, that the Corinthians have caused him and not uh, uh, siding with him in this and rebuking them for, the, for their inappropriate response to whatever the situation was or maybe their, uh, their lack of response. And so uh, here in our passage, Paul is referring to the Corinthians' response back to his rebuking letter, right? So he's heard from Titus about how the Corinthians responded to his letter. And the short of it is, the Corinthians responded exceedingly well to Paul's rebuke, and Paul, as a consequence, is rejoicing. So it's in this context that Paul is talking about godly grief. And it's important to note here then that when we're talking this morning about the idea of grief, we're not talking about the kind of the natural kind of grief that happens through life when we experience the loss of something, like the loss of a a friend perhaps, but rather the kind of grief that comes because of sin. So that's what we're focusing our attention on this morning, three characteristics of godly grief. All right, so here's our first characteristic. Godly grief is appropriate. Godly grief is appropriate. In verses 8 through 10, Paul introduces this idea of godly grief. So let's look back here into our text again in verses uh, chapter uh, 7, 8 through 10. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And it's clear from what Paul writes that he views the Corinthians' response, their response of grief, as the proper response to their sin. The word translated here as grieve is lupeo, and it's often translated as sorrow, or to be pained, or to be distressed. And it's the same word that's used in chapter 6, verse 10, which is where we get our sermon series title. Paul says that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That word sorrowful is the same word that's translated here as grieved. Grieving, yet always rejoicing. So to grieve about our sin is to feel sorrowful or to mourn about our sin. Now, perhaps it goes without saying that we should feel grief about our sin, but I think this is a point worth making. The world of Paul's day didn't always see sin or immorality as something to grieve over. If your immorality worked out for your advantage, then there was nothing to grieve over. You only had to grieve if you got caught. So Juvenal was a first century Roman poet, and he writes in one of his satires that the morals in Rome were so bad that he writes this, shame is jeered as she leaves the city and few detain her. So he personifies shame as a woman, and he's saying that the citizens citizens of Rome had become so shameful that when shame tries to make them feel bad about their sin, they shame her and drive her out of the city. You're going to shame us? We'll shame you, shame. And they shame, shame right out of the city. And our culture isn't all that different today. We've largely become a culture that, to quote the Lord from Jeremiah 6:15, has forgotten how to blush. 
But in the Bible, the capacity to sin without grief is not presented as a laudable capacity. And we can see this just in the Corinthians correspondence that Paul and the Corinthians go back and forth. So if we look back into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, back in 1 Corinthians, as I mentioned, there were a number of situations going on uh, in the church in Corinth that uh, should have provoked some church discipline. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 writes about one of these uh, related to an issue of gross sexual immorality. The Corinthians had become so broad-minded uh, in their position of tolerance that they were tolerating uh, something that was scandalizing uh, their community. So Paul writes this in chapter uh, 5, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. And then he writes this. Ought you not rather to mourn? Or again, in uh, just a, the next chapter in uh, 6, uh, 1 through 5, Paul takes the Corinthians to task because they're suing each other. And so this is what Paul writes there. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? They were taking their lawsuits, going to the civil authorities, and they were taking their agreements amongst each other and suing each other in the courts. It says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And then he says this, I say this to your shame. And Paul's point in both instances, and then again by inference here in 2 Corinthians 7, and the Lord's point really when he rebukes uh, wayward Israel in Jeremiah 6, is that grief or sorrow or even shame over our sin is indeed an appropriate response. It's how the Christian should respond when we sin. And the reason for this is because sin is not merely some failure to achieve some arbitrary moral standard. The Corinthian sin, whatever it was, again, we don't know exactly what it was, but it had caused Paul a lot of pain. And it had caused pain within the Corinthian community itself. So then in chapter 2, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I wrote to you about this situation out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. So the wrongful actions of the Corinthians had hurt Paul pretty deeply. And the fact is that all sin, all sin is most fundamentally a direct or an indirect failure to love. Every command from God is a command related to love. This is why when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus' response is, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, all the law and the whole prophets hang on these two commandments. So everything that God commands of us, all the morals that he gives us, all the regulations that he gives us, all of these are in service of love, to love God and to love others, which means that every moral failure is at its core a failure to love. Whether that's a direct failure to love, like 
stealing from someone or insulting someone, or it's an indirect failure, like failing to control my appetites. So we might think of our failure to control our appetites as personal failures that only affect me, myself. But when I fail to control my appetites, whether that's my appetite for food or for sex or for alcohol or for social media, I am compromising my capacity to love. So John Paul II, he uh, wrote a, a big fat book on sexual continence and sexual purity, but super very insightful. And one of the things that he says is that we need to possess ourselves in order to give ourselves away. He says we were created to love other people. We were created for love. And if we can't possess ourselves properly, if we can't be in control of our appetites, if we're not in control of who we are, we can't give ourselves away in love to other people. So the person who drinks too much or spends too much time on social media isn't simply harming themselves. They're harming those that they have been called to love, their children, their spouse, their friends. So our sins are never solely personal. Our sins cannot help but cause grief to others. And it's because our sin causes grief to others that it's right and proper and loving that it causes grief to us. It should grieve us when we grieve other people. So our first point about godly grief is that it's appropriate. And since it's appropriate, it's also appropriate for us to pause just a minute this morning and self-reflect on this point. How easy is it for you to feel grief about your sin? Maybe as a Christian, you've fallen into the trap of thinking of your sin only about yourself and that because God has forgiven you of your sin, you don't need to feel bad about it. Now, as you reflect upon the capacity, your capacity for grief in the face of sin, let me just say a couple quick things to help you as you think about this. The first is that grief is not the same as guilt. Guilt is fear of condemnation. It's focused on the consequences of my sin as it relates to me. But grief is different. Grief is sorrow for the pain that my sin has caused others. So it's not focused about the consequences of my sin for me, it's focused about the consequences of my sin for others. To be in Christ, to be freed from guilt, to be freed from condemnation. Christ has paid it all. The debt is gone. It's clear. The load is lifted. And because I have been freed from my guilt, which relates to the consequences of my sin with respect to myself, I am freed up to grieve for the consequences of my sin as it relates to others. I have to stop looking at myself, and I need to look at how my sin is affecting others. That's what true grief is with respect to sin. But if I can't get past my guilt, I can never get to grief about how my sin is affecting you. And I suspect that many of you, when I asked how easy it is for you to feel bad about your sin, you immediately went to guilt. But don't confuse guilt and grief. Because guilt will get in the way of godly grief. 
If you've embraced the gospel, God isn't calling you to feel guilty about your sin, but he may be calling you to feel sorrow about your sin out of love for others. Just because God forgives me for the hurtful things that I said to you doesn't mean that I shouldn't grieve over the pain that my hurtful things that I said caused you. Or just because God forgives me for my porn use or for my overindulgence on social media or whatever it is doesn't mean that I shouldn't feel bad about the pain that my sin has caused my spouse or my friends or my children because of my lack of my spouse or my friends of emotional availability in my relationships. So let go of the guilt, but don't let go of the grief. Secondly, as you think about your capacity to have godly grief, keep in mind that godly grief should always consider the long-suffering and the patience of God. When God reveals his name to Moses on Mount Sinai, he says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God is not your quick-tempered father. He's not your impossible-to-please mother. And his happiness does not depend upon your holiness. So think about a healthy parent-child relationship. Maybe this isn't the parent-child relationship you had, but think about a healthy parent-child relationship. When a child fails to love a sibling, that naturally and appropriately grieves the parent. Right? The parent sees the conflict between the children, and that's grievous to the, to the parent to see the children fighting. But the behavior of the children is not fundamentally the basis of the parent's joy, or it shouldn't be. And it's the same with God. God's joy comes from the wellspring of his own nature. He is eternally joyful, and he's not asking us to put his joy upon our shoulders and carry it around as though it depends upon us. That would be a crushing weight. Can you imagine having to carry around the eternal weight of God's joy? Which, as an aside to parents, don't ask your children to bear the weight, the load of your joy. It will crush them. Now, I'm not highlighting the long-suffering nature of God as a way of minimizing godly grief. In fact, the long-suffering of God may at times actually increase godly grief. God is so long-suffering. He is so slow to anger. He's so compassionate. He's so loving. And yet we still turn away from him and disobey his commandments. And maybe that should increase our sense of grief. But I bring it up because if we try to grieve into the face of an angry and quick-tempered God, our grief will inevitably turn into guilt and we will lose the capacity for grief. All right, so our first point is that godly grief is appropriate. Here's our second point. Godly grief produces repentance. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says that godly grief produces repentance. So look back into our text here. We've already read these verses, but look at them again. Paul says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then all through verses 11, through verse 11, Paul notes what this repentance looked like in the lives of the Corinthians. 
The Corinthians had an eagerness to clear themselves, meaning they had an eager desire to put themselves on the right side of the issue. Once they were confronted with their failure to be on the right side of the issue, they got themselves on the proper side. And then verse 11, Paul uses the language of indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and punishment. Again, we don't know exactly what the situation in Corinth was, but Paul's language here is referring to the Corinthians' willingness to correct the situation that Paul had been trying to address. So when the Corinthians became aware of their sin and how it had hurt Paul and how it was hurting their community, they didn't waste any time in making it right. And the connection between godly grief and repentance makes sense when we remember that godly grief is animated by love. If I love you and I see that I've wronged you, then the grief that I feel about harming you and my desire to make things right between us, they go hand in hand. So godly grief isn't about feeling bad about your sin or even just feeling bad about how your sin has negatively impacted others. Godly grief produces a desire to right the wrongs, to make things right, which is what repentance is. So godly grief produces repentance. Now, sometimes that may mean we just need to keep repenting because I suspect that most of you know what it is to sin, feel bad, feel grief, repent, and then go right back and commit the same sin again. So does that mean we didn't really repent? Well, not necessarily. All it may mean is that we need to repent again. Some sins are more besetting than others, at least for a while. So say, for instance, you get too critical of your coworkers, and you say things you know are hurtful. Maybe this is how you are with your friends or your children or whatever. And you're aware of it, and you feel bad about it, but doggone it, you're having a hard time keeping your tongue in check. So if you say harmful things, then take a moment, let yourself feel bad about it, have some appropriate grief, Tell your coworkers or friends or whoever that you're sorry. Right? And commit to doing better by God's grace the next time. That's repentance. And you've repented. Then if you say something hurtful the next day, then feel bad about it again and say you're sorry again. And then just commit to God's grace doing better next time and keep repenting until things get better. It's acknowledging and confessing our sin that so often is the means by which we are to move beyond it. And if you find yourself stuck in a cycle of sin, sorrow, repent with no real improvement, then find someone to talk to. This is why we have the body of Christ. It's why we have Celebrate Recovery. It's why we have each other, right? Find someone to talk to. The important thing about repentance is not that you never commit that same sin again. The important thing is that you do your best each time to make things right. And if you're doing your best and you're getting the help that is available to you to the best of your ability, you're talking to someone, whatever it is, you're getting all the help available to you, then just be grateful for the grace of God and embrace the theme of our sermon series, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Grieving, we should grieve for as long as we're sinning. Grieve, but because we're grieving our sin doesn't mean we can't rejoice in the Lord at the same time. This is one of the, Paul's bigger points throughout 2 Corinthians is that we can grieve 
and we can rejoice at the same time. So grieve your sin as you need to, but don't stop rejoicing in the Lord. And then that leads to our third and final point. Godly grief leaves no regret. In verse 10, Paul says that godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. And here Paul is saying that when godly grief produces repentance, we are freed up even from regret. And as we look down here in verse 12 and 13 in particular, we can see that the situation in Corinth has worked itself out in this way. Paul rebukes the Corinthians. The Corinthians feel bad. They have grief in their hearts about what they had done. They repent, and the situation is made right, and now things are good again. So when Paul writes here in verse 12, So although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, and therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So Titus is happy. The Corinthians are happy. Paul is happy. All of it has been brought around into a place of comfort. Now remember, godly grief isn't guilt, though. It's sorrow over the way my sin has harmed others. And this situation here that Paul is talking about, it's worked itself out in a way that is kind of good for all involved. And perhaps we can see how repentance can free us from guilt, but how does it free us from regret when the situation doesn't get resolved? And how many of us as parents, if you're a parent, wish that you had done things differently when your kids were younger? Or how many husbands or wives wish that they had taken more care with their marriage vows? How many of us wish we could unsay things that we had said or undo things that we have done? And all of these things have caused pain and harm to others. And we can repent... And we can do better, and we can commit to doing better the next time, but we can't undo the past. And we can't fix the damage that we've caused. And yet, when we repent and we cast ourselves onto the grace of God in Christ, He releases us not only from guilt, but He releases us also from regret. Look again back up to verse 8. Paul says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Paul did feel a little bad about making them feel bad. He says, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Godly grief is only for a little while. Paul wasn't expecting the Corinthians to live with a perpetual sense of grief over their failure. Godly grief is an appropriate initial response to sin, but it's not an appropriate perpetual response to sin. Godly grief is something that propels us beyond itself into repentance and then ultimately into rejoicing. So once we've allowed godly grief to do its work in our lives, we're free to leave it behind, even if the damage of our sin still lingers in the lives of others. The end of the book of Genesis tells the story of Joseph. And maybe you know this story. If you grew up in church in Sunday school, you probably heard this story. But Joseph was sold into slavery 
by his brothers, ended up in the land of Egypt when he was a young man, betrayed by his brothers who were jealous of him. And God, though, was faithful to Joseph in the land of Egypt, and Joseph rose to great power, so much so that he became the governor of Egypt. And years later, during a great famine, his brothers came to Egypt, hat in hand, unknowingly found themselves in the presence of Joseph. They didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And during Joseph's interactions with them, he could see that they were filled with regret over what they had done to him. He could tell that the sin that they had committed against him still haunted them, and they carried it with them even into that moment. They had repented as best that they could, but they were still carrying the regret. And it was in that moment that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and he said, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to save lives. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph could see the mighty hand of God and how it had been working even in his brother's sin. And he could see how God had worked and was working all things together for good. And he was saying to his brothers, yes, you've sinned. And yes, your sin harmed me and was painful to me. But you've repented and you've grieved over your sin. So be free of it. God is bigger than your sin. And he's bigger than the consequences of your sin. Godly grief is like a ladder that we climb up out of the hole that our sin has dug that takes us out into the freedom of repentance and joy. And once we've reached the top of the hole, we can kick away the ladder of grief. We don't need it anymore. We're free. And even if our sinful actions, even our sinful actions, when we repent, they're taken up into the wisdom of God's sovereignty and they're turned for his good purposes, just like it was in the life of Joseph and his brothers. We do not have permission to be indifferent about our sin, but in God's grace, we have permission to trust him with the messes that we have made. Not just the messes that we have made of our own lives, but maybe even more painfully, the messes that we have made of other people's lives. We give all of our mess to him, and we trust that somehow, in the redemptive power of his grace, he can take all of our messes and he can work them for good. And because we've given our messes over to him, we can be free of regret. He says, you've given it to me, now be free of it. I'll take it from here. And we don't have to live with the regret anymore. We cannot free ourselves of our guilt. We cannot free ourselves of regret, but we can cast ourselves onto the grace of God and he releases us from both. So we're going to sing about that as we close out our service. So let me pray. Let me invite you to stand as I pray, and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you that you have given us freedom in Christ, not just freedom from the guilt of our sin, but even freedom from the regret of our sin. And how, looking back, we could wish that we had done it different and that we hadn't caused the pain that we had caused. We can't undo the past, but we can trust you with the past. And we can trust you with the future. 
So God, we give our whole selves to you and we give all the messes that we have made to you. We want to live in the freedom that comes from knowing that you have stepped into those messes and you're making them right. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to love you and to know that you love us. And uh, God, be with us in all things we pray in your son's name.